Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, only you can make us. In Jesus' name, amen. What was a pivotal moment in your life? That phrase is a physical analogy, right? It's the moment when a situation tips from what it was to what it will be, usually irreversibly. I can think of one. Years ago, my wife and I were looking for a church. And I think we were a little fatigued of the searching and we show up in another church parking lot and we were late because we could hear the music thumping through the wall, that wall. <laughs> and we sat there in the parking lot and we didn't get out right away. And I think, I think I said, do you wanna go in? And I don't remember the conversation, but we went in. And it's a tiny decision, but it has meant a lot of things to me. And for you, at very least, somebody else would be standing here right now. I don't know about you, but I find it very interesting to trace those lines of causality backwards, to think about, well, if I hadn't done this, then that wouldn't have happened, and it led to this other thing. I read Great Expectations in high school. I really couldn't tell you hardly anything about it now, but there's a quote I'll never forget. A character has a particularly formative moment, and then suddenly the reader is addressed directly, and it says this, pause, you who read this and think for a moment of the long chain of iron or gold, of thorns or flowers that would never have bound you, but for the formation of the first link on one memorable day. One Christmas, our family got a desktop computer. <laughs> memorable day. <laughs> and a pivotal moment because I went from being an aspiring computer nerd to an actual computer nerd. <laughs> it was a Packard Bell, DOS 6.2, Windows 4.11, yes. <laughs> I had some games for it, of course. I think my favorite was Ultima 7. Yeah, no, I didn't expect that, but <laughs> it, it came on 15 floppy disks <laughs> and had amazing graphics. This is what it looked like. I realize that's not much by today's standards, but prior to this, my computer game experience was the all green Apple IIs at school where you could play Carmen Sandiego or Oregon Trail. That was pretty much it, right? So this was amazing. 16 different colors, right? Now, to get these kind of breathtaking graphics to run on my computer was not straightforward. I had to create a boot disk. Has anybody ever done this before? Oh my goodness, there's hands. I really thought, I had a whole spiel for nobody, you know, but no. So we're gonna talk for a second. And for the rest of you, this is what it feels like when you talk about college basketball to me, I guess, I don't know. But you had to, you had to edit these, these configuration files. There was auto exec bat and the config sys, right? And you were basically hacking your own computer and telling it, forget everything you know about word processing. 
Like a printer, what's a printer? You need to focus, computer, on putting that on the screen. It's gonna take everything you got. And if you left that disc in the computer, it was very broken for anybody else who wanted to do anything with it. And that's how I built a reputation as the guy who fixes computer stuff that I broke so that I could play a game. <laughs> Ultima 7 was an interesting game for many reasons, which I will tell you at length later if you like, but it was interesting because of who the protagonist was. You see, when you play Super Mario Brothers, that's more relatable, right? You play as Mario, right? When you play Zelda, you play as Link, yes. When you play Halo, you play as the Master Chief, Spartan 117, John, John's his first name. I've spent a lot of time with him on a first name basis. But in most games, you play as someone else, a hero, right? But in Ultima 7, you play as you. You see, the kind of strange premise of Ultima 7 is that you buy a computer game called Ultima 7, and in the process of booting it up, you get pulled into this fantasy world, and you are the hero. And that's kind of appealing, right? I mean, we'd like to be the hero. Everybody loves a hero. When a hero encounters a pivotal moment, they do the right thing. Things tip in their favor. And so before we get to our passage, let's get pulled into the world of Mark's gospel. So AD 30-ish, Judea, it was a powder keg. The people at the time would not have thought of it like that because they had not invented gunpowder or English, but it was a tense place. These people had lost their country and had regained it, but it was never quite the same. They had been living under a series of foreign oppressors. And I don't know, we live in a democracy. How do you feel when the wrong person is elected into office? Does that chafe? Does that make you uncomfortable? You've gotta wait four years, eight tops, for things to change? For these people, it had been this way, Rome, the most recent oppressor had been in their land for a hundred years and there was no reason to believe they wouldn't be there for hundreds of years more. And in fact, they were. There were rebellions. One of them even worked for a while, but Rome is very good at what it does and they all get put down eventually. And so in this time when this nation, it, it's being extracted, it's wealth, right? Being extracted and sent far away Jesus comes along and he starts talking about a kingdom of God that's near, a new kingdom. And that sounds pretty good because the current kingdom doesn't feel very good. And so people start to follow Jesus, not just because of that, but because he can do things people can't do. He's getting a lot of attention. And one day Jesus is traveling with his closest followers from Capernaum, sort of his base of operations, up north to Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, he says something that doesn't feel like it fits with this, the kingdom is almost here narrative. He says that he's going to suffer, be rejected, killed, and will rise after three days. And I'm sure that rise after three days part was intriguing, but the rejected and killed part, 
for his followers, that didn't fit their narrative. So much so that Peter, who's sort of the leader of the followers, takes Jesus aside and says, you, you can't talk like that. That's defeatist talk. What are people going to think? And Jesus says, Peter, your mind's not on the things of God. It's on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. And he gathers the rest of his followers around and he says, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll save it. And they don't understand this. And on the road back, back to Capernaum, Jesus says something similar. He says he'll be delivered over to the religious leaders of their day. He'll be killed, but he'll rise again in three days. And it says they're afraid to ask. They want to know, but they don't want to know, right? And he tells them, well, they start to argue. They say, when this kingdom comes, which of us is going to be the biggest deal? And he tells them, if you want to be first, you must make yourself last. And then just a few days before the events in the passage we're going to read, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And for a third time, always on the road, Jesus makes this prediction again with some more detail this time. He says he's going to be delivered over, condemned, mocked, flogged, killed, and will rise again after three days. And they still don't get it. And James and John come to him and say, hey, Jesus, when you're king and we got this kingdom, can we be like the number two and number three guys? Would that be okay? And Jesus says, yeah, you look around at these other nations and you see how they lord over each other. It's not going to be like that with us. If you want to be great, you must become a servant. If you want to be first, you must become a slave. And Jesus said, even he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. And so they get to Jerusalem and Jesus gets a king's welcome and he goes into the temple court and he starts to teach every day and every day the religious leaders get less patient with him. They're upset, one, because he does their job better than they do and I'm sure they don't like that, but also because he's getting a lot of attention. He's talking about a new kingdom. He was received as a king and Rome is going to notice you see these powerful leaders, it's not so bad for them. They've worked out a balance with Rome, right? And Jesus is upsetting it. And Rome is going to come and they're going to swing their hammer and they're not very careful when they swing it. And so these religious leaders probably think they're doing a public service when they concoct a plan to capture and kill and silence Jesus. And so our passage is this showdown. They found him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the moment Jesus has been predicting. And I'm going to read our passage. I'd like you to pay attention to three sets of people, the mob, the disciples, and Jesus. And in particular, pay attention to how they're feeling in this moment. It's Mark 14, starting in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This arrest is a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. But 2,000 years later, it's not one we think about all that much. At least I don't. It gets overshadowed by some other big Jesus moments. I mean, his birth is our biggest holiday. All of our dates are based on when that was. His death on the cross gave us the visual symbol for him and his followers. His resurrection, we're in a 40-day period of preparing for that party. We don't observe an arrest day, do we? And yet, in a way, it's the most pivotal moment. The difference between Jesus, the traveling rabbi, and his band of followers, and Jesus alone hung on the cross is this moment. It's the tipping point. It's the no going back now. The sequence of events Jesus predicted three times on the road starts right here. And maybe the reason it doesn't have a more prominent place in our calendar is there isn't really a miracle associated with it. There's no virgin birth. There's no tearing of the veil. There's no coming back to life. In other accounts, we learn that that severed ear gets put back on, but in Mark, it's presented so simply, kind of matter of fact. But I think there is a miracle here, a much bigger miracle than an ear replaced. And the miracle is in the way in which this pivotal moment tipped. I asked about the emotions of the people in this story. Jesus' followers are terrified. They flee. One of them chose public nudity over sticking around to see what happens. The mob is angry, but also afraid. That's why they have the swords and the clubs. But does Jesus seem afraid? No. We know he was in anguish over this moment just minutes ago. That's what Brian talked about last week. And yet, now, he seems like the only non-anxious person in this garden. And yet, he's the one that's in the most danger, right? The mob is there for him. Why is everyone terrified except for Jesus. They all think something they can't do without is being threatened. And how they act in this pivotal moment will decide their fate. Only Jesus is not afraid because he knows all he really needs is his father. Even though every human part of him is screaming to fight or flee, Jesus trusts completely. Have you ever trusted God to the point where the consequence of him failing you would be really, truly terrible? We often have a plan B, right? But Jesus in this moment, no plan B. He is trusting that this is the only way to bring the kingdom. From the very beginning of Mark, Jesus' message has been that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father, is near. And in this moment, Peter, 
saw the kingdom slipping away. John tells us that it's Peter who swung the sword. So Peter tries to be a hero. He takes action. He strikes to tip things in the kingdom's favor by killing that guy. And let's be clear, he wasn't trying to cut his ear off. He was trying to cut his head off. He's just not very good at it. (laughs) Peter's actions here, like his rebuking of Jesus on the road, show that he doesn't yet understand the kingdom. But we shouldn't be hard on Peter. The kingdom is hard to understand. It's hard to understand because it's counterintuitive what Paul calls our fleshly natures are not able to understand it because it's not of natural origin. It's miraculous. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, the time and place where God's rule as king is manifest. Now you might have a question here. We say that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and sovereign over everything that happens. So isn't everything everywhere God's kingdom and always has been? Yes. And one of the most astounding things about God is that he doesn't retain all of that for himself. He shares that rule. That's what's happening in the garden at the beginning of the Bible. The blessing given to humankind was to share in the rule of the world. The garden of Eden was the kingdom of God with humans participating for a little while. Because not everyone and not everything that God has shared his rule with is willing to share what has been shared. Not satisfied with their portion, they want more. Believing there isn't enough blessing to go around, they use their rule to restrict and diminish the rule of others. So new kingdoms emerge. They exist between the kingdom of God and the day-to-day experience of humanity. Small kingdoms, sub-kingdoms where the snake and the defiant will of humanity subjugates each other instead of being subject to the true king. You see, the power he gives us to rule with him is so real, so genuinely given that we can try to use it to rule without him. And how do these earthly kingdoms keep their power? How do they fend each other off? If people start to diverge from the values of an earthly kingdom, how does that kingdom react? Death. That's their tool, the threat of death. Not always literal death. Sometimes it's prison. Sometimes it's oppression, economic, social, or otherwise. Human nations exert their rule by suppression. And not just nations. We do this to each other. We perceive an enemy and we beat them down or we flee from them, maybe physically, maybe verbally. We lord over each other to various degrees from the small scale of the people you live with to the large scale of nations. In what ways have you experienced that this week? Were you the suppressor or the suppressed? I think for most of us, me, certainly it's been both. And so humanity faces a pivotal moment in a garden again. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a period where Jesus is tempted by the enemy just as his ministry is starting. Jesus is tempted to operate like an earthly king, to take what's not his. 
and Jesus resists. And Luke tells us the enemy departed him until a more opportune time. I think this is the more opportune time. The enemy is challenging humanity in a garden again. The first time, distrust released death. Adam and Eve fought against God's kingship by saying, I think I know better. We can do this on our own. And they fled from God when confronted about it, fled as naked as the young man in this story. She made me. It made me. It's anyone's fault but mine. This time, Jesus is surrounded by reminders of the failures of Adam and Eve. The mob is here to fight. His disciples are ready to flee, and Jesus has a choice. I think we rob this moment of its full power if we don't acknowledge here the full humanity of Jesus. Just a few minutes ago, he was agonizing about this moment and he has the power to avoid it. He's looking at these people, accusing him falsely, his closest friends not only abandoning him, but betraying him. You ever been betrayed? It physically hurts. The terrible pain has already started and he's not even beaten her on the cross yet. The opportune time to attack Jesus again, or so the enemy thinks. If Jesus had wanted to establish an earthly kingdom, this would have been the moment. And it would have worked because what can stop Jesus? If he wanted to install his followers at the top of the social pyramid, he could have. And they were on board with the idea. They had all these requests about being great. And Peter intended to be a hero of that earthly kingdom. He was going to strike and his brothers would join in and Jesus would do something with lightning bolts and they would scatter the mob, right? And they could have driven out Rome and sacked the elders and the chief priests and replaced them with people loyal to Jesus and they could have their nation back. But then what? What kind of track record do earthly kingdoms have? It doesn't take many crusades and heretics burned at the stake and abusive church leaders to realize that every nation on earth, every power structure with a human at the top, no matter how closely it claims to cleave to Jesus, still wields the tools of death to maintain its existence. The kingdom of heaven isn't like that. Can't be like that. Because its king isn't like that. The kingdom of heaven can't be established by force. It can't be established by social, cultural, or economic domination. A kingdom so one would not be the kingdom of God. Complicated sentence coming up here. In every human kingdom, the many with little power give what they have to enable the lifestyle of the few with more power or else. In the kingdom of God, the one with all the power gives it all to enable the life of many. This is a pivotal moment. And Jesus chooses what no other human has or could choose not to fight, not to flee, but to have faith. To trust the Father so completely as to walk right into the jaws of death on behalf of others, not because they love him so much, 
but because they don't. Adam and Eve believed the self-delusion that it was anyone's fault but theirs. For Jesus, that was actually true. It was everyone's fault but his. But he submitted anyway. And so there's this miraculous inversion. Distrust released death, and now complete trust is going to destroy it. After Adam and Eve's failures, God finds them, and he clothes them, and he loves them, and he gives them a promise that says it will be put right. And here we are, as things are starting to tip from wrong to right. In this passage, Jesus says the scriptures are being fulfilled. And I don't think he means a specific prophecy. I think he means the scriptures are being fulfilled. And what is the summation of scripture? Jesus said it just a few days ago to the people in the temple courts, maybe people in this mob. Love the Lord and love others. And that's the miracle of arrest day. Jesus, falsely accused by those around him, abandoned by those closest to him, betrayed. He chose to trust his father at this moment. Love his father in this moment by loving the very people who were accusing and abandoning him. There is no greater love than self-sacrifice. By human standards, he lost. He gets dragged away and murdered. By kingdom standards, he's a hero. Loving the Father completely by trusting him. Loving others completely by standing between them and the death they've been dealing. Kingdom victories don't look like earth victories. Kingdom heroes don't look like earth heroes. They exhibit all the things Jesus talked about when he predicted his death. Servants putting themselves very last. In every human kingdom, death is what sends you out. It's the threat of death that keeps you in line. The kingdom of heaven is the opposite. If you're following Jesus, there always comes a moment where you feel like you're gonna lose something that you can't live without because our hearts are hard and our flesh protests. We wanna make it on our own, on our own power. But there'll be a moment where our flesh says, no, no further or we'll die which is exactly what we need. The kingdom of heaven is a place you die into, not out of, and not physical death. Death of your fleshly nature. This is what Jesus meant. Lose your life to save it. By dying to the selfish misrule we've imposed on ourselves and others, we can really live under the true king. Peter and his sword thought all was about to be lost. When in actuality, all was about to be gained. His flesh cried out, do something. But Jesus proves himself a hero of the kingdom of God, a hero who won a tremendous victory. What does the victory of Christ look like in your life today? Is there something you feel like you're losing? Something that's threatened? Something you're swinging your sword to protect? It's control or 
being seen a certain way, being a big deal at work, having a certain kind of relationship, looking a certain way? Is it possible you don't really need those things? Is it possible that their loss would actually be Christ's victory in you? Just like God shares his rule, Jesus shares his victory. God is utterly other-centric. There's this adage we use to dissuade ourselves of self-importance. We say the Bible isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the hero, not us. And that's true. But God sent Jesus, and Jesus obeyed his sending for us. Jesus' faith, his love, won the victory. But we, who don't have a faith so complete, whose love is mixed with selfishness, we get hailed as the victor. It's like they go to put the medal around Jesus' neck, and he says, medals for them too. And if that doesn't feel a little unfair, we haven't understood it. It is radical, scandalous grace. It's like we're logging in with Jesus's Netflix password, right? All the benefits, the cost paid by somebody else, and it feels a little unfair. Now, I don't want you to go this week and say, my church has some interesting ideas about password sharing. That's not really... Maybe this is a better analogy. We enter the kingdom of heaven on Jesus's passport. Our papers say wanted criminal and Jesus takes those and he loses them and he hands us his and they say hero of the kingdom and that's the welcome we get. I invite you to consider that the most pivotal moment in your life is not actually a moment in your life. The moment that defines you, the moment that sets your future is a moment in Jesus's life. The moment he shared his kind of inextinguishable life with you. Now, Peter experienced that moment firsthand. I like to read about Peter in the gospels and then see what he has to say in his letters. It's really interesting. I think it's really interesting. I am a nerd, as we established earlier. But here's Peter, who, recall, was ready to kill to stop an unjust government from taking his friend. Here is Peter on the subject of governments. First Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Huh. Something changed for Peter. Something changed Peter. Rome isn't something that needs to be defeated because Rome has been defeated. It's one weapon blunted by Jesus. Peter now lives a bigger kind of life in a bigger kind of kingdom.
And just a few lines later, he's reflecting on this moment and the moments that follow in the garden. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Returning to our shepherd, I've been thinking about Psalm 23 a lot lately. That's the famous shepherd psalm from Gangster's Paradise. You know that song, right? <laughs> Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's how the song starts. The, the psalm starts, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus was believing that psalm in this moment in the garden. Jesus is in the valley of the shadow of death and he's not afraid. Even though everyone else has left, his father is with him. And that's enough. You know, that psalm also talks about green pastures and still waters. And right in between those pleasant places and the dark valley, it says that God leads me down the right way for his own reputation's sake because of who he is. Jesus knew that the dark valley is no less intentional than the green pasture. We tend to think, I'm in the green pasture. That's right. Things are good. And the dark valley is wrong. Things are bad. But Jesus knew that who was leading him is more important than where he is. He was where his father wanted him to be. And right here, pivotal moment, I could say to you, so be like Jesus. Look at Jesus' faith and have faith like that. Look at his love and have love like that. Look at his trust and have trust like that. And friends, this is the thing to remember tomorrow. If I said that to you, I would be dealing death. I would be suppressing you because Jesus is not an example we're able to follow. We just can't. And trying to will eventually crush us. Jesus knows that just a role model won't really help. If we treat Jesus like a role model, it will not do anything about our heart's need to abuse our rule. Our need is much more urgent. We need a savior. And Jesus saves us not because we try to emulate him, but because he knows that we cannot. God shepherds us through the green grass and the dark valley, just like he did for Jesus. But we cannot summon a trust as complete as his. And the good news is, we don't have to. Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus believed these things so completely and is so other-centric that via the Holy Spirit, his life of trust actually lives in us. That's the life we gain when we lose ours. And that life in us, it doesn't seek to be first. It doesn't seek to be served. 
but to serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know what we did that you love us so much. That you would give so completely of yourself on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on this arrest today, for what you did when you were accused, for what you did when you were beaten, and what you did when you were hung on a cross. You didn't revile in return. You didn't strike out. You trusted. And you won a victory. And you shared that victory with us. What an amazing thing. King Jesus, what a different kind of king. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.